Revelation 10, verse 1. You can read aloud at home. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. He had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. I want, I want you to capture the vision just a minute before I keep reading. John, John is such a great servant. He's listening, and he's got a scroll in one hand and a pen in the other ready to write. When preaching time comes, when God speaks, be ready to write. Be ready to take notes. And John is just assuming God is going to give him another revealed message. Would you notice what happens here? <clears throat> and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. He said, don't write anything. <laughs> that is just, if you just stop there and wonder, what is going on here? And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth. And that's significant. We're told that twice. Lifted up his hand to heaven, and he sware, that is, he affirmed, or he made promise to, he sware by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, remember now, six angels have sounded the trumpet. The seventh one hasn't sounded yet. We won't see that to the end of chapter 11. When he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Third time he said that. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many people, and nations, and tongues, and, and, and kings. He said, take the little book. Take the little book. This passage is about the little book. Father, bless your word tonight. Sanctifies through thy truth. This book might be little, but it has a powerful message. And heaven and earth may pass away. But thy word shall never pass away. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Lord, I pray you help me to be a conduit and work through my weakness, my insufficiency, my inabilities tonight. And in spite of me, Lord, in spite of me, Lord, I pray you speak to the hearts of your people and feed their souls. Bring us closer to the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Give encouragement to those who need encouragement. Give a fire for some where the embers have, they're down from a fire down to embers. Give strength to those who are weak. Give revival for those of us who need revival. I pray you breathe life in the dry, dead old bones in that valley tonight. Do a work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we <clears throat> looked at chapters 8 and 9 at the seven, uh, at the, announce, the announcement for the seven trumpet, uh, uh, the seven, the seven trumpet judgments. And we looked at the first six trumpets. Honestly, if you just took some time to read that by yourself, they're, they're very, they're very, very just um, very alarming. And we see two categorizations of these trumpet judgments. First, we see disasters on earth. And then secondly, we see the unleashing of demonic activity on earth. Unprecedented demonic activity. Unprecedented, unprecedented disasters on earth. One-third of the earth ecologically is destroyed. Forest fires, wildfires, um, produce, fruit trees, crops destroyed. Drinkable water destroyed. Sea life, and it could be just the Mediterranean Sea, which is spoken of there in, in, the, in that trumpet judgment, but sea life disrupted. No longer sustainable. Mercantile ships destroyed. Militaries perhaps destroyed. Their, their naval supply in those areas destroyed. The demonic activity working through locusts that are, that are very hideous and horrific, afflicting men for five months, even to the point where the Bible says those men wanted to die, but they could not die. God wouldn't let them die. They suffered because these were men who did not have the mark of God in their, in their lives. We ended chapter 9 by looking at 200 million demons, if you can imagine that. 200 million demons that are unleashed. One-third of men, one-third of men are killed by these demons. And then we concluded chapter 9 of the men who did not die, who were not killed by these plagues, who had not repented. That's amazing. I'm seeing all that carnage, and the rest of those men, they did not repent and enlist their sins of their idolatries and their sorceries and of their murders and their immoralities. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And as we end chapter 9, verse 21, if you look at that, you would think, without having the Scripture in front of you, you would think that God was going to announce the seventh trumpet. And the seventh angel would blow the trumpet, and you're just kind of sitting in suspense thinking, man, if, if that's already bad, what is the seventh trumpet all about? And we see in chapter 10 and chapter 11, again, another pause, another interlude. Did you know something? Sometimes we can be so blinded. We can be so obsessed with a problem, with something that perturbs us, with something that gets under our skin. We can be so obsessed with that thing, that problem, that disaster, that thing. I mean, right now, the the civil unrest that's going on in our nation. One of our men in one of our non-English speaking departments, I texted him this morning and I said, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you this morning and for your family. I wish you could be here at the drive-in service, but because English is not their best language, they couldn't come. And he said, Pastor, he said, I, he says, thank you for praying for us. He said, I need your help. I, my relatives in another country are singing the news, everything about the unrest here, and the riots, and the word they're getting because of the media portrayal, which is twisted. I said, which is twisted. It makes America look really bad. And he said, I love our country, and I thank God for an immigrant who loves our country. Amen. He said, what do I tell them? I said, tell them, don't believe everything the media tells you. It's still a good country. It's still a good country. There's good things in this country, okay? And I said, uh, you know, everybody's obsessed with everything going on. 
Everyone's obsessed with it. John saw in chapter 9 judgment by demons. Now he saw Jesus heal demon-possessed people. But in, but in the tribulation, demons are not being cast out of people. Demons are possessing people. I mean, possessing them by the millions. And John, if you can imagine, like you and me, is so obsessed with he's, what, what he's seeing, he's, perhaps, he's probably vacillating emotionally and spiritually between discouraged and alarmed and disgust and whatever else you can use to describe the human emotions when you see something that's just awful. And the Lord said, no, that's not what I want you to see. That's not what I want you to see. And God put a pause there. And the pause God gives us is chapter 10. May I remind you something right now? Because a lot of people in our church are discouraged. You're obsessed. You can't graduate. You're obsessed. You don't have a job. You're obsessed because of things that have happened that seem illegal or not right. And, and, and again, we should be bothered. We're obsessed by COVID-19. And we're thinking, you know what we're thinking? Or, or you're obsessed. You're obsessed because somebody didn't do something the way you wanted it done. And so you're so obsessed, instead of having a Christian attitude and the mind of Christ and adopting Philippians 4.8, that it, whatever things are good. And by the way, if you came today and all you saw were mistakes, you weren't thinking about good. Philippians 4.8 says, think on those things which are good. You ought to thank God you have a church right now. You ought to say amen to that and send a comment. I don't care who you are, you ought to send a comment right now. Thank God for my church. Thank God for preaching. Thank God for a church. Thank God for his word. Thank God today for Isaiah 25 this morning. Because I'm going to tell you what, you get so obsessed, God has to put us on pause every now and then. And that's what he was doing with John. He put John on a pause. He put him on an interlude because the centrality of everything in our life is not about the problem. The centrality is about Jesus Christ. So he's on pause. Now when you read chapters 10 and 11, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of doctrine there. Maybe I could say that. There's a lot of mysteries we're trying to unravel in this. Let me give you three summaries before I get into tonight's message. You want to write this down, please. Three summaries. Number one, number one. Remember now, chapters 89, there's chaos. There's anarchy. There's apostasy. It's a mess. But here's number one, number one. God is always in control. Now, the statement we use, which is a new evangelical statement, unfortunately, God is still on the throne. I want you to think with me about that. That makes it sound like Jesus stepped off the throne. God is always on his throne. Amen? God is always in control. God is never out of control. God is always in control. Second thing I want you to see tonight. Second thing I want you to see. And this is actually in our passage tonight. God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. If you don't have the book, I have some in church. Next time you come, I'll give you one. Staff, you don't have one, you guys ought to get one. Warren Wiersbe, one, one of the books he wrote, he's got these, he, he wrote a lot of these devotional books as well as his commentaries. And his, if you don't have his commentary, you ought to get his commentary. He's a good conservative commentator. Just, he just went on to be with the Lord last year. I think it was around last year, around May or so. But Warren Wiersbe wrote a devotional that encouraged artists entitled, God is Never in a Hurry. And that will do you good every now and then. You need to stop there and just read some of the, just some of the things God impressed on him. He was, a, he was a man that had an unusual, unusual ability of understanding God's word. But number two here, God is never in a hurry. Now, you like to rush things, and I like to rush things. You know what I've learned along the way? God sometimes is going is to roll you over the tractor, son, so that you learn that God is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. You might be in a hurry, but God is not in a hurry. Listen, God's going to put you on the backside somewhere and put you laid up with your legs both up somewhere, and you're going to, it's going to take you a year to recover so that you might learn God is not in a hurry. There's a third thing. God is always in control. God is never in a hurry. But as we end this chapter, we're going to see God always accomplishes what he wants done. 
God always accomplishes what he wants done. Now, if we remember that, we'll understand what these two chapters are about, okay? So tonight in chapter 10, I want you to see the following. Number one, we're going to see three things tonight. Number one, I want you to see John and a majestic vision. John and a majestic vision. Notice verse one. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now, John is describing in verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read verse 2 a little bit later. He's describing here what he saw. He saw another vision. And this vision was about, notice this, another mighty angel. Now, we said this in previous messages. One of the things studying the book of Revelation that makes us stop his study is we, do, we have to stop for a minute to do a study of angelology. Now, let me pause there and say this. In studying angelology, you be very careful that you don't get, you don't get, you get sideways and spend more time studying demonology more than you do angelology. I know of a preacher right now that got off on a series that last year, two years ago, started preaching about angelology as a series. He went off on that and he spent too much time on demonology. He quit the ministry about three months after that. He quit preaching, left his church. I'm going to tell you tonight, he was doubting his calling and a number of other things. You be very, very careful. Spend your time looking at angelology more than you do demonology. But here's what I want you to see tonight. As we look at these angels, we know something tonight. The book of Hebrews reminds us that God, these, God's angels are, spirit, are spirits and ministers of fire. The very word angel means they're God's messengers. I mean, the pastors there at the seven churches of Asia Minor, they were, they were called the angels of the churches. They were the messengers of the churches. Angels specifically convey messages. Angels are guardians. Angels give protection. They are ministers of their flaming ministers of fire. They give protection. They give the message. They were sent as messengers. Michael, the archangel, was a messenger. Gabriel, the archangel, was a messenger. God has his messenger. But we see something else here. The Bible very specifically here describes another mighty angel. Did you notice that tonight? We're told here another mighty angel. Now, there's only one other place where that phrase is mentioned. That's later on, I think, in Revelation 18 about another mighty angel. Now, the question is tonight, is this mighty angel, another mighty angel, is this another angelic being? Is that an archangel? Is that an archangel? And what you notice in verses 1 and 2, the Lord took descriptive time, uh, took some time to give us a description about this angel. And he mentions about this angel three times that he had his foot on earth and on water. He had his foot in two, his feet in two places. I'll get to that in just a minute. But, but who is this angel? Now I'm going to tell you what, what I believe tonight. I believe, if you read a lot of books, you're going to hear divided things about it. They're either, they're either an archangel or they're probably the, what I'm going to tell you. I believe this is the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is some, something of what we call a theophany. I believe that the Lord came down in the appearance of a mighty angel. I believe the description here fits that. We know that Jesus came many, many times in the Old Testament by way of a theophany as an angelic appearance. We, 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 we read about that there in, in, in Genesis chapter 32, where, when the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob at Panah, we believe that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the theophany. We believe that when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, I was, I've been spending some time this week studying through Gideon. By the way, go to your God morning devotion this week. I've got a couple new devotions about Gideon this week that'll encourage your heart. But I got one this week that when the angel of the Lord came to him, and I was reminded that was a theophany. That was the, that the, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to him. I believe this is the Lord Jesus Christ who came in the appearance of a mighty angel. And how do you know that? Well, I, I think there, there's several reasons why, but I want you to notice something here. That some of the secret we have to understand in the book of Revelation is the following. Go back to chapter 1 with me. In chapter 1, it helps us to understand what the book of Revelation is about. Because if we're not very careful, people get more caught up about the apocalyptic about, than about the person. And the book of Revelation begins this way. It says, the revelation, notice, of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, the, revelation, the book of Revelation is more about Jesus Christ than it is about the apocalyptic events. You start in chapter 1, everything about chapter 1 is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about revealing Jesus Christ. We get to chapter 10, which just interestingly is right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the book, is about Jesus Christ. We get to chapters 20, 21, 19, 20, 21, it's right there about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is he doing that? Well, I believe for one simple reason. We must remember that the centrality of, of, of life, the centrality of the Christian life, is that Jesus Christ must be foremost. Jesus is at the beginning, Jesus is in the middle, and Jesus is at the end. The centrality of life is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, astronomers believed 
those who studied the planets, they, they had believed, and you studied this, they believed that, that, the, that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth. It wasn't until Copernicus came along and did his study and he realized, no, the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of the universe. And all the planets, the galaxies, they, they revolve around the sun and they get their life from the sun and everything that happens around that. And you see tonight, the same thing can be said about the Lord Jesus Christ, that nothing falls into place unless it revolves around Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not the center of your home, your home's going to be a mess. If Jesus Christ is not the center of your life, your life is a mess. If Jesus Christ is not the center centrality of preaching, the preaching will not be effective. If Jesus Christ is not central in our church, the, the church will not be central. I'm telling you tonight that the centrality of everything about what we're reading and studying, we must not lose sight of the fact that foremost in the book of Revelation is the, is the preeminence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I believe this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can disagree with me. That's fine. But let me give you some reasons why. It's a majestic vision. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, it's a majestic vision because we see Jesus and his awesomeness. He's awesome, isn't he? There's none like him. There's nobody in comparison to him. You say, well, how, what makes him awesome? Well, look at verse 1. And I saw another angel come down from heaven. John, Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came down from heaven. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He took on human flesh without sin to die for your sins and mine. Notice it tells us he was clothed with a cloud. What a description. The Bible tells us and teaches us that as we see the image of a cloud, especially the Old Testament, the cloud surrounding, surrounding the tabernacle represented the presence of God. Let me read some verses to you tonight in Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That was representation of the presence of God. Hey, God led them by a pillar of cloud by day. That was a really, the very presence of God. We read over in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. 1 Kings 8, 11, listen to this. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses, excuse me, uh, number 16, 42. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked towards the tabernacle of the congregation. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Listen, where we see the cloud, we see the glory of the Lord. I believe this morning, this evening, as we look at chapter 10, verse 1, it speaks about this mighty angel that came down from heaven clothed with a cloud. I think that's referring to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing we see is the glory of our Lord, the glory of the Lord. Listen, when you, when you look at Jesus, the very first thing you see is the glory of the Lord. He is all glorious. He is reser he's reserved to glory. He deserves our glory and praise. Listen to 1 Kings 8, 11. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. He was clothed with a cloud. Notice something else here. It says, it says here, and a rainbow was upon his head. We saw earlier in another study that the rainbow represents God's covenant of peace that he gave to, to Noah. He said, I'll never judge the world again by flood. Hey, rainbows are a reminder to us that the storm is over. The storm is over. A rainbow covered his head. The rainbow was obvious. The rainbow represented God's covenant of peace. And then we read about something else that says, his feet as pillars of fire. So no, his face was it were the sun. Hey, go with me to Revelation 1.15, please. 116, excuse me. Revelation 116. And we correlate chapter 1 of Revelation with these verses, and you start realizing this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 116 says, And he had in his right hand uh, seven stars, and out of his mouth were a sharp two-edged sword. And we'll see that manifest again in Revelation, Revelation uh, 19. And it says, And his countenance or his face was as the sun shineth in his strength. 
Revelation 10, 1 says, and his face was it were the sun. He's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. The sun is recognized for its strength and its power. And just the very idea of the sun reminds us of chapter 1. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see something else. It says his feet were as pillars of fire. Go back to Revelation again. Look at Revelation 1.15. Revelation 1.15 says, And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Pillars of fire burning in a furnace. Fire and furnace always remind us the fire cleanses, fire purifies, fire is consuming. Our God is a consuming fire. We speak about revival fires. We study fire in the Bible. We understand that it purifies and it cleanses. We see tonight as the Lord Jesus Christ here said his feet were as pillars of fire. All I'm saying tonight as we look at all this, it speaks to us about the governance of our Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to us about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. We look at this and we see it's all, his awesomeness is revealed. But there's something else. Look at verse, uh, verse 2, please. In this majestic vision, God was not done yet. I mean, God took some time to put, embed in, in John's mind this vision of this mighty angel. And John understood from this that he was correlating this back to chapter 1. And he described it just as he saw in chapter 1. And we get to verse 2 here. And he not only speaks about the, in this vision about the awesomeness of our Lord, but he talks about the authority of our Lord. Now again, when we see Revelation, we see a time of anarchy. We see a time of unrest. We see a time of murder. We see a time of killings. We see a time of just crime running rampant. And we have to remember that if we focus and get obsessed with the bad things, we forget that God's authority still never changes. Verse 2 speaks about his authority. He had in his hand a little book open. Revelation 5, a man cried out, one of the elders cried out and said, no man is worthy to open this book. There was a scroll that was in the hand of God. But Jesus was the one who took that scroll and he opened that scroll. What you notice here, Jesus, as he descends, the little book is already opened. The little book is already open. There's no question of who has the authority. But here it gets even better than that. Notice in verse 2. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, during Roman times, when they conquered, again, you need to study this, to study this out with about the Roman Empire. When they conquered an area, when they conquered an area that was by the shoreline, symbolically what, the, what they would do, the general would come, or the king would come down, the, the, the emperor, and he would put one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth, and as he did so, one foot in the water, one foot, basically what they're saying, we've conquered this land, we've made claim to this land, this land belongs to us. Now that's very significant, because three times we find that this mighty angel put, had his foot in, in, the, in the earth and his foot in the water. Three times it mentions to us that he made claim. Can I tell you something? That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saying, this world might burn, and this world's waters might be poisoned, and the food supply might diminish, and the, and the atmosphere might get messed up, but it's still his creation. He's making claim to creation. He's making claim to Calvary because our Lord came to earth and he died on Calvary. He's making claim to creation. He's making claim to Calvary. He's making claim to the fact that in Revelation 19, he will conquer. He's going to come back and his feet will be on this land and he's going to conquer. He's also telling us something else. One foot on the water, one foot on the land. He's crossing across the entire, entire, the, the entire circumference of the globe, the entire circumference of the world. And he's saying this, this world is my kingdom. I'm claiming this as my kingdom. Listen tonight, that's his authority. It reminds us tonight that the devil and the beasts are not the ones in authority. God himself and Jesus Christ are in authority. What a majestic vision. When you think everything is falling apart, God's in control, amen? When you think everything's falling apart, God has never left his throne. God is in control. We see his awesomeness. We see his authority. He makes claim to everything. Listen, when Joshua was ready to claim the land, the land of Aaron, remember what God told him in Joshua chapter 1? Every place that the sole of your foot should step upon, that have I given to you. That's conquering. And John, when he saw that, he said, that can't be anybody but Jesus. 
He made claim to his creation. He made claim to Calvary. Calvary was not his defeat. Calvary was victory. He defeated Satan's sin and death at Calvary. I remind you tonight, this majestic vision encourages me. When things look dark and bleak, get your eyes back on King Jesus. You're discouraged and hurting, get your eyes back on King Jesus. John saw a majestic vision. Secondly, would you notice verses 3 to 7? God, uh, John heard a masterly voice. Now John's mind is captivated. In two verses, the Lord's got him off of being discouraged and perhaps being bothered by all the things he saw. I remember years ago, two different situations before I became a pastor as a layman. I went with my pastor. I got saved under another man. Two different times of dealing with very serious demon-possessed situations. They were pretty bad. I mean, they were bad. And I remember going home, and for one week, so embedded in my mind was the horrific possession of these demons. I think of a young lady where the demons had so possessed her that we back, back in those days when we had cassette decks, remember all that? And we, we, we played Jesus Be the Lord of All. I don't know if you remember that song. The life action singer sang that. It was called Jesus Be the Lord of All, Jesus Be the Lord of All. And when we played that, the demons went nuts in that house. This young lady took pillows, threw it at the mantle, knocked things off a shelf. She went violent. I mean, she started ripping pillows apart. I mean, this little girl, she couldn't have weighed 80 pounds. She went nuts. I mean, she just, it, was, it was just complete. I remember leaving, and that night I couldn't sleep. I mean, it was so embedded in my mind. Now, I made a mistake. I should have prayed after I saw all that. But I remember from one week straight, all my mind was filled with all that stuff. And you know, God, John saw 200 million demons unleashed out of hell. You can just imagine what was going through his mind as one-third of the men are being killed off. He's seeing this vision. And God had to get his thoughts corrected. And so, number one, he sees a vision of the awesomeness and authority of Christ. But number two is now his mind is settling down, and his mind is back on the things of God. He gets to verse 2, and now he's ready to hear a voice. Would you notice in verse 3, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. My little granddaughter Evie went a little bit smaller. Certain noises would be very unsettling for her. She heard a garbage truck come by. The sound of the garbage truck was very unsettling for her. She didn't want me or, or Papa to hold her because she was very scared. Or sometimes when she's at our house, if I go out through the door and I just open the door abruptly and she hears the bell go off and the door open, she gets very scared. She jumps out of her chair, literally. I mean, literally just jumps out of her chair. Noises, certain kind of noises can be very unsettling for us. Have you ever been to a place where it's very quiet and you think you're by yourself and somebody comes up and says hi and you get startled, you jump up in the air and get scared? I've done that to Brother Daniel several times. Where Brother Daniel's been outside, in the, been there in the hallway. And I say, hey, Brother Daniel, he jumps up in the air because he didn't expect anybody to be there. And, you know, when you're the person looking at it, it's kind of funny. But when it's you that happens to, that is not funny, right? It's not funny there. And you're just startled. And, and, and literally, I'm the only person probably that in here, in, probably in Dan, Brother Daniel's life, has actually saw his hair stand up. Amen, you know? And uh, I've seen his hair stand up because he got startled there. I want you to notice something here. John in verse 3, that there's a crying with a loud voice by this mighty angel as when a lion worth. Hey, listen, number one, John is startled. He did not expect to hear the roar of a lion. Now the Bible says in Amos 3.8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I was at a family camp. My daughter, Carice, was about four years old, and Tiffany was about two. 
It was after a family camp. I think, I think Clarence Sexton had preached at family camp. He was a young preacher. He's preaching up in New Jersey back in that time. And he was a fireball of a preacher as a young man, still a fireball of a preacher now. We came out, my preacher and I came out. He said, What's God's, what would God do in your heart tonight? I said, preacher, I said, if God ever calls me to preach, and I showed him Amos 3, and I said, God, I said, God spoke to me on my devotions. I said, if God ever calls you to preach, that's the verse God's going to use to call me to preach, and he has. He says here, the lion is word, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Listen, when a lion roars, he's announcing and he's terrifying all the animals that are potential prey that he is in town, that he is an authority, that he is there. And this voice here, now I want you to understand now, as he's giving, he's giving a description, analogous to the sound. He's not talking about this lion being Satan. He's just saying it's used as an analogy to point out the fact that there's an authority behind this, 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 this voice here. And so it says he cried with a loud voice, and uh, as, 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 as when a lion worth, and when he had cried, would you notice this? Seven thunders uttered their voice. Now that's not the significant. Now, I've got some preachers in the room with me tonight. And the preachers in this room here tonight, if I just say what you preach, they've got, they're ready to preach. They're ready to go. And I want you to understand something tonight. John, in verse 3, John, in verse 3, when he hears this loud voice, before the thunder sounded, and this voice is like a lion that's roaring, there's an earnestness in that voice. The Lord has come down from heaven in this vision. One foot on the sea. I want you to imagine this in your mind. One foot on the earth. He's made claim to his creation. He's made claim to Calvary. He's made claim to his kingdom. And he's standing there in all authority, rainbow on his head, a cloud covering him, and his face shining like the sun. And I want you to notice his pillars of his legs burning like a fire in a furnace. I mean, it's, a, it's an awesome sight. And he's roaring, and he utters his voice. There's an earnestness in the voice of our Lord. Did you understand something tonight? When we read the word of God, it's the voice of the Lord speaking to us. There's an earnestness in the voice of our God. God never speaks to us in a placid way. Oh, it's okay. You can take your time. No! God speaks to us with an earnest voice about things to come. But there's an emphasis in his voice. Would you notice it? Not only did he hear the lion, the, the voice of a, the, the voice sound like a lion that's roaring. But seven thunders uttering their voices. Now, one of the best passages of Scripture, I've preached this many times, but I'm going to have you see this tonight. Psalms 29. It's one of my favorite Psalms. Because it reminds us that thunder is symbolic of the voice of the Lord. Thunder is symbolic of the voice of the Lord. If you'll turn with me tonight, that's not in your notes, but turn with me tonight in Psalms 23 for just a moment. Psalms, Psalms 29, see, I said 23. Psalms 29 tonight, please. In Psalms 29, David wrote this. And I want to I read through this real quick and give you some thoughts here. In verse 3 says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thundered. There it is. The Lord is upon many waters. Now I want you to notice there's, there's some symbolism here that speaks to us so wonderfully about how God speaks to you and me. In verse 3, the voice of the Lord upon the waters. Waters in this sense is speaking about people, about nations. The Bible says in Isaiah, the wicked are like the sea. Now, he's talking about the waters. What's he talking about there? He's talking about people. You know what he's talking about there? The voice of the Lord speaks to the sinners. That's what he's saying there. The voice of the Lord speaks to the sinners. How do you know that, Pastor Fong? Notice, verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. God's voice 
calls sinners to himself. God's voice brings sinners to himself. Listen, the voice of the Lord, God, God wants his voice to be heard. I'm praying one day we'll have a radio ministry. I'm praying one day that somehow through the internet we'll be able to get more of the word of God out. We'll get the message out that'll travel in different places. I'm saying today, the Bible teaches us that God's voice is heard on the many waters. Sometimes in our limited Western way of thinking, we think that God's voice is not in some country, and yet we find out later on that God used the natural from the Philippines or from Vietnam or somewhere like Korea to go there, to bring the gospel there. The voice of the Lord is upon many waters. God's voice is speaking to sinners. Notice the second thing in verse 5. Here's the second break point. The voice of the Lord, notice this, breaketh the cedars. He breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you know anything about the cedars of Lebanon, that was hard wood. That was good wood that they used to build the temple of God. That was famous wood. They'd go to the forest of Lebanon and cut down. Those were the best trees to use. But notice the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. You know what he's speaking about there? In verse 3, the voice of the Lord speaks to the sinner. In verse 5, the voice of the Lord speaks to the saved. You know what he's telling us? That God, once you get saved, sometimes God has to speak to us. And through his word, he breaks our spirit. And through his word, he breaks our heart. And sometimes through his word, he breaks down our pride. And sometimes he has to break down the barriers of sin in our life. The voice of the Lord will take some of you. Can, you can boast all you want about what, 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 how good a Sunday school teacher you may be. And you can boast all you want about how eloquent you may wax. And you can boast all you want about how spiritual your life may be. But I'm going to tell you tonight when the voice of the Lord comes along the voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Those cedars of Lebanon they shoot only one direction. They shoot upwards. And to say that the voice of the Lord speaketh and he breaks it in half. God sometimes will have to take a very stout, upward looking Christian who thinks he's very strong and thinks everything's going well and boom a trial comes and boom God says something in your life and boom God breaks you like he breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Look what he says in verse 6 he maketh them also skip like a calf. Lebanon is Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord in verse 3 speaks to the sinner. The voice of the Lord in verse 5 speaks to the saved. Notice in verse 7, the voice of the Lord speaketh to the straying. The wanderer. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. I want you to understand, the emphasis here is on the thunders of the Lord. And by the way, it says seven thunders. Seven thunders. Seven is the number of God. Notice this. He shaketh the wilderness. He shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. He's talking about the desert of life. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds the cow, discovereth the forest. The voice of the Lord speaks to the one who's straying. He says, listen, you think you're hiding that forest? I can find you. I know where you're at. I know where you're at. You think you're hiding in a nightclub? He knows where you're at. You think you're hiding some cubicle somewhere late at night? He knows where you're at. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. John is startled. The emphasis here in verse 3, chapter 10, verse 3, when he had cried, Seven thunders uttered their voices. It's the voice of the Lord. John is startled, but notice verse 4, John is stopped. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. He was such a good scribe. Hey, he was like Ezra. He was a ready scribe, amen? He was a ready scribe. He's ready to write it down. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things with the seven thunders uttered, write them not. Now, somewhere along the way, John here got a glimpse of what this seventh trumpet, seventh trumpet sounding would be. He's ready to write. And God said, seal it up. Write, not them, write them not. He says, stop. Stop. Pastor Ed Lorena, pastor's Christian Bible Baptist Church in San Pedro, Philippines. They started probably about 210, 215 works. 
I wish I could take our church there and see them on a normal Sunday. It is a great Bible college. In his Bible college training, he has preacher's training, homiletics. And he asks his young men to get up, and you have to understand these young men don't have a lot of tools. He asks them to get up, and he says, I want you to preach a message, so they'd have preacher boy day. And one young man got up, opened his text. This is how he started. I want you to remember, this is the Philippines now. San Pedro, Philippines, Laguna, Laguna province. The young man said, when I was in Ohio, Dr. Rader said, wait, stop. Stop. When were you in Ohio? He said, young man, where'd you get that message? He said, from the sword of the Lord. Stop. God told John, stop. Don't write anything down. You know, there's some things God's chosen not to tell us. You know, one of the problems I have, I've had this for years, and I hope some of them are watching right now. I've had problems with seminaries, sometimes cemeteries. In institutions of higher learning, To take passages of Scripture that God has chosen not to tell us everything or concepts that are not in the Bible and to give meaning to something that is not there. And I get really bothered when I look at the, and, I, and I've had this problem for a long time. Of all the books that flood the Christian marketplace, on concepts and things that are argumentative, they're divisive, that are the devil's tool to get people sidetracked, and people get off on the minutia instead of on the main things. And I want to tell you tonight, God has chosen, there are some things he just doesn't want us to know. And what we should be concerned with are the things that we're supposed to know. The things we're supposed to be obedient to. I remind you tonight, too many people give understanding of the things God has chosen not to tell us instead of the things that God has chosen to tell us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, listen. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I'll give you an example. In, 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 in Genesis 6, is a, the, the question is always asked. When you read Gen Genesis chapter 6, were those angels? Were those men? Who were they? And some people, because maybe they come from a church background where there was a particular emphasis, they, they had a different persuasion there. And they, they get divided. I mean, there's so many things I could talk about tonight. But the sacred things belong to the Lord. You know what? What we don't know in this life, God will take care of that when we get to eternity. Amen? He holds a little book. Amen? He'll tell us all about it. Listen, listen to what God told Daniel. Listen to Daniel. Now, Daniel was smarter than you and me. And Daniel, at the age of 90, in Daniel 12, look at this, verses 8 and 9. And I heard, but I understood not. Well, that's interesting. He knew more Bible than you. Hey, he gave, us, he gave us the 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. And he said here in chapter, chapter 12, verse 8, I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And you know what God said? He said, well, God, you, you, you know, he told him about the tribulation. You told him about the two resurrections. You told him about things to come. And so the natural question was, he asked the question here. I would have asked the question. You would have asked the question. He said, what should be the end of these things? You know what God said to him? Look at verse 9. Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. You know what he said? Just keep on going. That's what God told John. John was startled. John was stopped. Notice something else. John was stirred. We go to chapter 10 of Revelation. And verse 5 says this, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. This is so glorious. I mean, it's so good. And swear by him. Now, God can swear no greater than himself. We know that from Hebrews chapter 6. And 
They're swearing where God's name is taken in vain. And we're told to swear not by heaven and earth. We're told not to take the name of the Lord in vain. But there's a swearing where there's an affirmation. And I believe this is Jesus. This is, again, another reason why I believe this is Jesus here. And he swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein. I mean, that's good stuff right there. I mean, you could just stop right there and have yourself a great devotion right there. And he makes a statement here. That there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God. What mystery? About the things which he has not revealed. That's the seventh trumpet. The mystery of God should be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now the phrase, time no longer, is one word. It literally means this. The period of delay is over. God is not delaying his judgment any longer. You know, the hardest thing about a trial is a waiting. The hardest thing about a desperate prayer that you make to God is the waiting. Your wife, your husband is diagnosed with an illness, the rush to ER. When you're waiting in that waiting room, seconds aren't minutes. Seconds feel like days. Days feel like years. Years feel like decades. And when he saw there that the Lord made an affirmation that there should be time no longer. Here's what he was saying. Here's what he's saying. And John's getting all stirred up about this. Sin has run rampant. Man has shaken his his fist in the face of God. They've kicked God's word out. They've despised his word. And you watch this tonight. I'm going to go on public about this. I'm for safety. I'm for safety. And I'm good with the fact we've got to, right now, in a pandemic situation, we have to limit how many people come into a church setting, in a room. But I'm going to tell you, the day's coming, you mark it down. The day's coming, they're going to overreach their authority, and they're going to tell churches you can only have 100 in attendance at one time. Or less. And there are days coming, just as it is right now. One of my preacher friends just told me this. They reopened. They said, you can't sing in your church. The day's coming. They're going to limit the public reading of God's word. Even right now, they're going to say, I'm spinning too much. I'm spreading too many germs and too many microbes and too many, too many, too many droplets there. And they're going to take a health and safety rule and make it a censure rule. You wait and see. You wait and see. It'll happen during my lifetime, in your lifetime. And God said, the delay is over. The saints of God who were beheaded and martyred in Revelation 5, they said, how long, O Lord? And God's saying here, there's no more delays. It's coming. God has delayed his coming. And he's judging because he's not willing that any should perish. But time shall be no longer. There shall be no more delays. John is stirred. Because you know what? We need to thank God tonight that in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is delaying his coming. God is delaying all of these things because he wants a few more people to get saved. He wants a few more fathers and mothers to get saved. Take it. Eat it up. Eat it up. Get your heart's desire. And get more than that. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Eat it up. Don't eat portions. Listen, the Bible's not small plates. Small plates is a culinary design to make you hungry. Dim sum and tapas are small plates. This is not small plates. This is a wine on leaves and a feast of fat and marrow. Eat it up. 
John was a good Baptist. You know what he said? Give it to me. Amen. And so verse 10, he says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. Psalms 19 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey. And he goes, hey, he said here, it was sweet to my mouth. Do you ever have that candy growing up as a kid? Had paper around it, but it was edible paper. Would, I don't know what it was, but it, was, it would dissolve in your mouth as you ate the candy. It was sweet in your mouth. He said, when I ate it, it was sweet to my mouth. Jeremiah 15, 16, thy words were found and I did eat them. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing in my heart. I'm called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Ezekiel 3, 3, and he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I gave thee, and I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. He ate it up. The word of God is for an edible consumption. Eat it up. Eat it up. And he said this in verse 10. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now the word of God is sweet to us. But when we receive it, when God's word calls out our sin, it's bitter in our belly. When God tells us that worry and anxiety are sin, it's bitter in our belly. When God tells us bitterness is wrong, it's bitter in our belly. When God tells us we're unforgiving, it's bitter in our belly. When God tells us we have a bad spirit because we're biting and devouring one another, or we're just going around and, and we're causing strife because we've got pride in us, it's bitter in our belly. We don't, it hurts. It hurts. It's a sword, it's a sharp two-edged sword, piercing and dividing the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's edible consumption. It'll be bitter to your belly. Sometimes I like spicy food. I get bored, I have to have something spicy, amen? And if I put too much spice on it, I won't say it's bitter in my belly, but my belly's on fire, amen? And it hurts a little bit there. John said, I ate up that little book. It was sweet in my mouth, bitter in my belly. Let me say this to you tonight. We must be filled up with his word if he's going to trust us with his word. We must be filled up with his word if he's going to trust us with his word. We see an edible consumption. But in verse 11, we see the final thing. Would you notice this? He ate that book. He's thinking about the voices. He's thinking about this mighty angel who is still standing with one foot on the water one foot on the shoreline. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again. You know, preachers, you laymen don't understand this. One of the biggest areas that the devil attacks preachers in is in their preaching. I think I should quit. I'm a loser. Why am I doing this? Right there, verse 11, thou must prophesy again. And wherever John was at, if he was discouraged about what he saw about those six trumpet visions, the seven sealed, the seven sealed trumpet, God told him, thou must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues and kings. Would you notice tonight in this, in, in this mandated venture, he gave him edible consumption, but in this mandated venture, he said, you have an evangelistic commission. You have an evangelistic commission. He said, you must preach again. You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You know what he's saying here? He gave him the same commission that the apostle Paul received, that he was to preach unto kings and to all peoples. I'm reminded by Paul in Acts chapter 26. He said this, 
But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness of those things which thou hast seen, and of those things of which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. You know what he's saying there? Eat it up and get the gospel to the world. Eat it up and get the gospel to the world. He said he ate it, was bitter in his soul, because, listen, God told him, you're going to have to take the message. You still have an evangelistic commission, and you're not limited to Jerusalem. You're not limited to Patmos. You're not limited to Ephesus. He said you've got to go before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. He said take it to the world. Fritz Kreiser was a very noted violinist. Best in his day. He died in 1962. He captivated audiences around Europe with his concerts. The mastery of the violin, his compositions. But Fritz Kreisler was a man that had a very generous heart. He gave most of what he made away. He was visiting a city where he was about to give a performance. He heard about an exquisite violin that was at an antique store. He got the address and he found his way from where he was staying to the antique store. He knew exactly the quality and the capability of that violin. He asked the antique store owner, that's a good violin. He said, that's an excellent violin. It's exquisite. That was his word. It's exquisite. How much? How much would you like for it? The antique dealer gave him an astronomical number because he knew it was an exquisite violin. Mr. Chrysler didn't have that money on him. He said, sir, if you'll hold that violin for me, I've got a couple of performances. I'll save up the money, come back and buy it. The antique owner knew Mr. Chrysler. He said, Mr. Chrysler, you're world famous. But he said, I'm in business for a profit. I'll do my best, but if I get an offer, I can't refuse. I'm going to sell it. Mr. Chrysler said, I understand. He was a gentleman. He went on and did his performances, saved up a little bit more than he needed, made his way back to that city, Went to the antique owner, and to his disappointment, the antique owner had sold the violin. Mr. Chrysler said, who did you sell it to? The man who bought it was a very wealthy man, an art collector, an antique collector, musical instrument collector. He said, I know that man. I'll find my way to his house. Fritz Chrysler went to that man's house, knocked on the big double doors. The servant came to the door. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes, sir, and he told the man's name. He said, I'm here to see Mr. He told him his name. Would you let him know that Fritz Chrysler's here? The servant invited him in, told him to sit there in the parlor. The wealthy man came down. They exchanged friendly gestures. The man ordered, had his servants bring some tea, serve some tea to Mr. Chrysler. He said, Mr. Chrysler, what can I do for you? He said, sir, he described that violin. He said, oh, yes, let me bring it in so you could see it. He brought it out of a beautiful showcase Mr. Chrysler saw it. He held it in his hands. He cupped the violin under his chin, took a bow, just made one sound with it, put it back on the table. He said, sir, I'd like to buy that violin from you. The antique dealer said, this is what he sold it for. I'm going to offer you more than that. The man said, I'm not, it's not for sale. Oh, but you have to sell it to me. That's a one of a kind. 
that's an exquisite violin. I'm not selling it. But sir, you have to sell it to me. He said, I'm not selling it. And he tried to persuade him for 20 minutes. The man became more adamant. And he became more very firm. I am not selling this violin. Mr. Kreitzer, you can try all you want. I'm not selling this violin. Mr. Chrysler was very discouraged. He dropped his head. He grabbed his hat. Thank you for your time, sir. He stood up. His host stood up. Then Mr. Chrysler did something very unusual. He put his hat back down. He said, sir, before I leave, would you let me play that violin? Just one time? Would you let me give you a, a private performance right here in your parlor? I just want to play it one time. The man thought, well, sure, why not? He says, sir, why don't you sit down? Mr. Chrysler tuned it up a little bit, cut the violin under his chin, Started playing it. Man, he played a performance that was a performance. Music was heard throughout that entire house. Servants came from upstairs. Servants came from the kitchen. Servants came from the outside. Everyone stopped what they were doing. They said, we have never heard music like this. And Mr. Chrysler was playing. He put himself all into that. He was playing that violin. He was making, I mean, he made that thing go. He was just playing that thing. And he finally got to where he crescendoed that thing. He finished his, his piece. He finished that performance. And as soon as he was done, that room that was filled with this wealthy man, his family and his servants, they all stood up and <laughs> gave an incredible applause to Mr. Chrysler. Tears were coming down that wealthy man's face. He couldn't contain himself, and so were the servants. Nobody in that room could contain themselves for the music that touched their hearts in that room. Mr. Chrysler took the violin off his chin. And with the bow, went up to the wealthy man, presented it back to him. The wealthy man, with a trembling voice and tears that were coming down his eyes, said this, I have no right to keep it to myself. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it to the world and let people hear it. Take it to the world and let people hear it. God the Lord Jesus Christ told John, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. As I close tonight, take it to the world and let people hear it. It may be a pandemic world, but take it to the world and let people hear it. It's not mine's to keep. It's not yours to keep. Eat up the little book. It might be a little bitter in your belly, but eat it up and take it to the world. It's not ours to keep. Take it to the world and let people hear it. I tell you tonight, God gave him, God gave him an incredible mandate adventure. We need to take it to the world and let people hear it.